Um, today we're going to talk about a subject that I feel with 16 kids completely and utterly qualified to talk about. We're going to talk about reproduction. Um, and I would tell you not to be nervous. Um, come on, you know me. You should totally, you should totally be nervous. Um, I grew up fairly comfortable. My mom's online. Hey, mom. Um, I grew up fairly comfortable with the birds and bees talk uh, because my mother was a nurse and also a bit of a free spirit, a little bit like me. And so she had the ability to discuss sensitive issues in an almost clinical and factual manner without making it like a dry textbook study. And, uh, and, and completely unappealing. So she became the parent that all my friends uh, came to with their birds and bees questions. Um, my buddies would come to me and go, hey, we need you to ask your mom a question. And I would go, go ask your mom. And uh, to which they would go, my mom would kill me if I asked her this question. Your mom's cool. Go ask your mom. And so we'd come with these absurd questions. Hey, what is this? you know, we'd hear a word. We didn't know what it meant, but we knew it was dirty. And so we'd be like, hey, mom, what's this word mean? And she would explain it. And she was always super cool about it. And so, uh, uh, so she was the one we talked to and she could, she could handle the questions. And, and so I grew up completely comfortable talking about sex until I became a dad. And then it, then it got weird. I remember my two oldest boys were in sixth and seventh grade. We were putting them into public school for the first time. And I was positive they were going to be bombarded with sexual literature and they were just going to throw condoms at them when they walked in the door and, and lascivious teenage girls were, with no consciences were going to attack them. And so I was, uh, I was nervous. And so I figured I got to educate them before they, before they go in. So over the summer after dinner, I asked my two oldest, Hey, you guys want to go to Sonic? And of course they said yes. And, and, uh, and so I took them to Sonic ready to have the talk, the talk, you know, and when I walked back in the door, Esther looked at me and I went, no, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I tried and I couldn't, I couldn't find an opening. And so it took four tries. It took four tries, four trips to Sonic. The boys were like, this is awesome. We have Sonic once a week. It took me four tries to get, um, to, get uh, the, to, to finally have the talk. And when I started it, they were clueless, like clueless. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm not even going to tell you what this is about, really how this works, because you would say I'm gross and you're never going to want to do that and you would think I'm disgusting. So I'm just going to ask you to trust me. This is going to be something you're going to be interested in one day. So we need to talk about what that means. And so it was super vague and, and weird. But I finally had to talk. Uh, and the only thing harder than that was when I took my oldest daughter out to have this same talk. And so we went shopping. We borrowed a new shirt. We went to Olive Garden and we ate and we were having some dessert. And, um, and I... Uh, I, I was about to chicken out. Finally, I was like, no, I got to do this because this is Olive Garden. I can't do this once a month. Once a week. It's too expensive. <laughs> and so I go, I fumble through this long, ridiculous spiel about how her body was going to change and what that would mean about her attire changing and how that's totally normal. And I got into all the biological stuff that was going to go on in her body and how boys are gross and you want to stay away from them. And, and, uh, and I went on for an hour sweating and, and trying not to vomit from nerves so it's kind of like preaching a sermon, really. But um, and the whole time she just looked at me wide eyed, occasionally nodding to show she was still interested. And after this eternal birds and bees rampage, I asked her if she had any questions. And she looks at me and smiled and goes, Dad, Mom had this talk with me like two years ago. <laughs> but she let me go through the whole thing. She let me sit there and squirm and and sound like an idiot for a whole hour before she finally let me out of my distress. So, uh, 
And now we just do what everybody does. We let our kids learn on YouTube and TikTok, you know, like the rest of the world. And then we ask them questions when we have them. Um, but uh, my favorite birds and bees story of all time is Jennifer Johnson. And she's, I don't think she's here. And I did not ask permission to share this. So I'll repent later. But um, <laughs> when her, she homeschooled her, her oldest daughter through kindergarten and first grade. And then Micaiah through kindergarten. And then she realized that homeschool wasn't really for her. And so she was getting ready to put him into public school. And like me, she was nervous about the things they were going to be exposed to. So she sent Mackenzie, her oldest, down and gave her the whole birds and bees talk right before second grade. And, and, and sent her in prepared. Like now she heard it in a mature way, in a Bible-based way. She now knows how things work in God's kingdom. And she can go in. And like on day three, Jennifer starts getting calls from other parents. Like, why is your daughter telling our kids about sex? We didn't want them to go there. So in trying to like protect her kid, from the kids who know too much, she became the kid who knows too much, and she informed the whole rest of the class how everything works, which is awesome. Uh, so um, we are actually going to bring this uh, in today, but we're in week two of our summer series. We're calling Acts Like a Christian, where we're looking at the book of Acts, not just as a history book about the beginning of the church, but more as a model for the Christian life um, and maybe what it should look like um, in light of this particular book in scripture. What does that mean to be a Christian in our world? We're going to be digging into to that question really for the next uh, several weeks. Um, this week, we're diving into the second chapter of Acts. If you want to follow along in your own Bible or your app, um, you can join us in Acts 2. If not, we'll put the words on the screen. Acts 2 reads like this. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm. And and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues, or flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews of every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Providence of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read Peter's entire message. Peter comes out and and preaches a message off of this. I recommend you go home and read it at home, but it's long and we're not going to be diving too deep into that. But uh, but he comes out. Everybody thinks they're drunk because they're act like this blew them away. And so Peter preaches a message and he wraps it up like this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and to those far away, all who call on the name of of the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. I know how that works. Strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that that day, about 3,000 in all. This is 
the word of the Lord. So let's start with some nerd work. We're going to set this up a little bit. What exactly is going on here? The beginning of this chapter, um, this scene that we typically think about as Pentecost um, uh, is actually chock full of, of fun Jewish symbolism that the Jews of that day and the Jews that actually lived through this story would have picked up on um, immediately. First, this happens on Pentecost. We think of this as like the beginning of Pentecost. This is actually, to them, they're celebrating um, Pentecost. Uh, uh, we, we go back to Acts 2 when we think of Pentecost or Pentecostals, but they go back way, 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 way farther. Um, when this was written, the word Pentecost uh, took the reader to 1,500 years before this. Um, when Moses led the Israelites uh, out of Egyptian slavery... Um, they finally left kind of their oppression um, and where God had dumped these terrible plagues on Egypt so that they could be free. The final one was the destroyer uh, doing terrible damage um, in Egypt, ex- unless somebody sacrificed a lamb and put its blood on the lentils and doorposts of their home. And then then the destroyer would pass over their home. And, and this set off this Jewish festival called Passover. The Israelites left Egypt after this Passover and went into the wilderness and this, the Egyptians started second, think, second guessing things and they decided to give chase and they chased the Israelites up against the Red Sea where God parted the waters. The Israelites went free and they went out into the wilderness and they settled at the foot of a mountain and 50 days after this Passover, this, this moment where they, where they sacrificed these lambs for their own survival, God shows up on Mount Sinai. And from then on, they named that day Passover, which just means the 50th. Or, or uh, I'm sorry, Pentecost. Pentecost just means 50th. So the 50th day after Passover is Pentecost. And this became a Jewish um, uh, first fruits festival where you would uh, throw a festival at the beginning of, of the planting season or the beginning of the harvest season. You'd pick your very first fruits. You'd throw a party and taste them. And, and it would kind of be an indicator of, of what the, the harvest was going to be like that year. It was a big way to celebrate the harvest. And they celebrated on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover and the very first Pentecost was the day God shows up on the Mount Sinai and gives them the Decalogue or what we call the Ten Commandments. Um, And so this was a day that was celebrated by Jews for 1500 years, the day of Pentecost. In today's reading, 50 days after the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, Jesus is killed in Jerusalem 50 days later on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. God shows up again. And, uh, and what's really fun is how similar these two events, the very first Pentecost back in the wilderness in Mount Sinai, when God shows up on the mountain to give his word. And in 33 uh, AD at nine o'clock in the morning, when God shows up again to his people in Sinai, it reads like this on the morning of the third day. The thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain and a long, loud blast like a ram's horn and all the people trembled. So God shows up with this loud noise on Mount Sinai, this loud, crazy noise. And the upper room, it says like this. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like a roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. So if you're looking for markers of God's arriving, loud noise. Check. We got that. The second thing uh, that happens um, on Mount Sinai is says all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of a fire. So God shows up 
at Mount Sinai in fire in the upper room. It reads like this. And when they looked, flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. So the upper room sounds like Sinai. It looks like Sinai. But what is the purpose? God gives his purpose for this big show that happens on Sinai. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak and believe you forever. So Moses told these words to the people. And in the book of Acts, it reads like this. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation. And when this, when this sound occurred, the multitudes came together and they were confused. So God came speaking to Moses so that the people would hear. And he came speaking to the apostles so the people would hear. So the purpose is the same. And we've got another. Oh, man, I read for a long time. Okay, let's do the last slide. We'll get there. One more. One more. There it is. You hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So in both stories, the purpose seems to be that God would show up so he can speak to his people. So the similarities here between these two stories, both happening on the day of Pentecost, 1,500 years apart, are pretty staggering. Um, and I, but I don't actually think that these are similarities we're supposed to hang on to for the sake of seeing how similar they are. I think they're here to, to highlight the differences in the story. I think the, the similarities are supposed to be there to accent the differences because there are some major differences between the first Pentecost and the second Pentecost. At Mount Sinai, something goes weirdly wrong. Uh, God is ready to show up to his people, but, but things don't go the way they were supposed to. It's, without reading all the verses, I want to, uh, I'll just tell you that people kind of get themselves pumped up. Moses tells them how to consecrate themselves, how to get ready for God's presence, how to kind of clean themselves and, and things to avoid because God is coming and you want to be ready for his presence. Um, and then when the fireworks show up and God actually descends and there's smoke and there's trumpet sounds and, and there's rumblings and there's fire, they get scared. And, uh, and here's how that reads. Now all the people witness the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of a trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So what, what was intended to be this opportunity for, for Israel to get to experience the presence of God turned into the priestly system, uh, whereby this mediator had to stand between God and his people. So now they're like, Moses, you go talk to God and come back and tell us what he said, because we don't. We don't want to talk directly to God. He is scary and we don't, we're, we're not okay with that. So, so God before this told Moses, get the people ready. I'm coming to talk to my people and the people were ready. They got themselves ready. And then all of a sudden he shows up for real and they get spooked. They're like, no, no, no. How about you go into that mess? We'll stay out here. And we know what happened when they were out here. They started worshiping a golden calf. Things got weird. And, and so everything kind of fell apart this moment. They decided not to be. In God's presence. And this is the key difference between what happened on Sinai, the first Pentecost, and what happens in the upper room. Because the upper room reads like this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord, together, in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them, dividing tongues of fire, one sat on each of them. There's no more 
mediator. No more one person gets to experience the presence of God while everybody else stands and waits to find out what he said. There's approximately 120 people in the church at this point, all packed into this upper room. And there's no indication that anyone experienced anything different than anyone else. Everyone in the place has this happen to him. A tongue of fire came personally to each one of them. It's as if God is saying, this is what it's supposed to be like. Everyone has access, not just Moses. Everyone can come. This, this upper room, this experience, this direct contact with God is what was supposed to happen back on Sinai. And now, after 1,500 years of this kind of mosaic priestly separation, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we're able to redeem that brokenness. That thing that was broken at Sinai, where you guys decided to, to, to hide from me and to put this buffer between you and me, we can now fix that. And once you're on this theme of fixing this brokenness from the past in this moment, where God is saying this is not the way it was supposed to be, we can put it together right now. Now that Jesus has redeemed you, we can start to put things back together the way they're supposed to be. Once you're on that theme, it shows up more and more. Way back in the story, there's the story we're all fairly familiar with. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass that as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us uh, make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone uh, and they made asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad among the faces of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is, uh, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from... Uh, from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, the name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language all over the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. One of the oldest stories in the human brokenness. And it's about this time when humans were unified. They were one. They they had real unity. Only it was unity away from God rather than unity toward God. And because of that, God had to come and destroy the unity and he, and he scattered it. He said, this is when you're, when you guys are unified, because unity is not automatically good. Peace is not automatically good. It's only good if it's aimed toward God, unity toward God. Unity is, is powerful and it can be powerful toward God or it can be powerful away from God. And so God destroys the unity. But in Acts chapter two, God starts redeeming that old story. God starts reversing Babel, it says they were complexed and amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And and we hear all these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things that God had done. So God is reversing Babel. He's redeeming this old broken story. Only instead of the people being unified against God, they're now unified and talking about the wonderful works of God. Of God, so so something in this day is not only redeeming this thing that went wrong on Sinai; it's redeeming this thing that went wrong in the Valley of Shinar years before, 
where the people were scattered and they were broken and they were hearing different languages. Now God is putting that back together. So in one move, God begins to heal the division of the Tower of Babel. He does the same thing uh, with, with, uh, with Sinai. So suddenly, this story starts to not look like just this new thing that God is doing, but it begins to look like this whole redeeming story, this story of fixing broken things, this story of redemption, which, of course, is the Christian story. We, we are in a story of redemption. We're in a story of fixing and healing brokenness. And this is important to us. Because every single one of us can look back at our own story and know that something went wrong. Something got broken back there in the past somewhere. Maybe you can pinpoint the moment. Maybe you know when it happened. You know what your Tower of Babel was, what your Sinai was. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something that was done to you. But we know things went off the rails somewhere. When it felt like suddenly the whole world was speaking a a different language and and things didn't fit together the way they used to and something's off and something's wrong. And if that's you, please know that the upper room is your story. This is for you. If the upper room teaches us anything, it teaches us that God speaks our language. I'm not talking about English, Spanish or French. I'm talking about the language of our brokenness. He knows how to speak our language and put things back together again when they've been scattered. Everyone came running at this sound in our story today. People people heard what was going on and they showed up to hear God speak to them in their language, the thing that they needed to hear, the way that they needed to hear it. And I think that same thing happens today. So the first thing I want to draw out of this chapter before we can get kind of back to our main point is that this is a story of redemption. And I'm not talking about just people getting saved, although that happens as well. I'm talking about God beginning a work of setting the world right. The things that had gone wrong, the things that had gone broken, long, 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 long time ago, God starts the process of setting those things right. And we're part of that story. This is not just a story of getting saved and getting to heaven. That's a great benefit of the story. But that's not the story. The story is God fixing the things that have been broken. But let's look at the immediate result of this event, this kind of cataclysmic moment where God comes and crashes into his people. As I said, people come running to figure out what on earth is going on. uh, And they experience this kind of miracle of hearing God's word in their own language. Pentecost was a pilgrimage festival to the Jews. It was, a, it was a time when people, Jews scattered all over, came back to Jerusalem to celebrate. There were certain rules where you weren't really supposed to celebrate it at your home. You're supposed to pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And so they're scattered. The Jews are scattered all over the Hellenistic world, come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this Jewish holiday. And most of them spoke the, spoke the language from where they lived and probably a little bit of Hebrew. They could probably pray in Hebrew, stuff like that. Mostly they spoke their native languages from where they came from. So Jerusalem would have been packed with these, what we call diaspora Jews, Jews who didn't live in Israel. It's, there's a lot of them in town this week. And, uh, and, and the earliest church comes pouring out of this house, speaking their own language, but everybody hearing it in their language. And it's a hard thing to ignore. And so people gather around to find out what's going on. And the question I'd love to, to wrestle with today 
is what would you have done if you were the early church that day, 2000 years ago? And you're in this upper room, you're having a prayer meeting, I guess. And God crashes in in this crazy, intense way. And 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 you're looking at everybody else and going, you your head is on fire. Is my head on fire? Like, because your head is on fire. Like, and, and this weird thing is happening and you feel God's presence in this crazy, amazing way that is not just like in your heart, but like in the room. It's super intense moment. What do you do in that moment? Here are some options. Worship, obviously. This would probably be my go-to, you know, when anytime I'm in an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is just seems more present than other times, I go straight to worship mode, like 24-7. Like there's times I just wake up like singing a worship song. And I love when that is going on. Like the very first thing in my head is is a particular worship song. Um, I love that. And that that's probably my go to. You would not get me out of that room is what I'm saying. God shows up like that. Like, where's my guitar? I'm staying here for the next week. This is my moment. If not worship, maybe maybe it's study. That's my second go-to. Like, <laughs> Esther teases me. The At our wedding, the, the preacher preached an amazing message. And I literally am standing at the altar. And he's speaking. And I start feeling like I got my notepad on me. I'm like, this is good stuff. I need to write some of this down. <laughs> Esther's like, I can't even remember what he talked about. I'm like, are you kidding me? He talked about Isaac and Rebecca. And then when Isaac married Rebecca, I was I wanted to take notes like I'm I'm a nerd. Hello, I'm Chris. I'm a nerd. And so, yeah, if the Holy Spirit shows up crazy, there's times when amazing things are happening. And I'm like, oh, man, I want my Bible. I want to take notes. Like there's some cool stuff happening. So that's that's probably my second go to is is the second the Holy Spirit shows up. I'm like, I need to study. I need to find out what's going on here. Find it in the Bible. Nail it down. That's where I need to be right now. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it's service. Some people, when the Holy Spirit shows up, they go into service mode. We used to have this monthly prayer meeting that we'd go to. It'd go for hours. And George, the host, would spend almost, I mean, he would pray somebody who spend almost the whole time making snacks and making sure everybody is comfortable and feeling like they have the easiest possible access to God's presence. And, and I used to try and take his place like, George, get in there, man. It's crazy. The Holy Spirit's doing crazy stuff. I'll cook. He's like, no, man, this is my thing. Like, I love providing an atmosphere where people can can access God. Some people, that's their thing. Maybe you would give. Maybe you would teach. Maybe you would quit your job and live an ascetic life. Who knows? Maybe you wouldn't change anything if God showed up in a crazy, powerful way. St. Francis has this, this famous conversation where he's hoeing his garden. And somebody walked up to him and said, what would you do if Jesus showed up bodily right now? He goes, well, I hope I would finish hoeing my garden. It needs to be hoed. Because I live every minute as though God's presence is here. Why would I change anything if he actually showed up? This is important work. My garden needs hoed. Maybe you wouldn't change anything if God showed up crazy. Who knows? What I love about this morning's passage, though, is that the earliest church, when it was fundamentally changed by the arrival of the Holy Spirit, their very first instinct was to share the gospel. They didn't, they didn't stay in going, this is amazing. We are going to sit in this amazing presence forever. Their very first instinct was to leave the room and share the gospel. Out of all the things they could have done in that moment, they chose to leave and go to people who needed the gospel and share it. These are our roots. This is the very first iteration of Open Table Community Church or any other local church you can think of. This is the very first version of that. Whatever denominational background you grew, you came from or you still adhere to, 
We all trace our lineage back to this moment. This is all of us. In fact, secular historians actually trace the the Christian story back to this moment. A lot of them have studied like how the, the like totally secular historians have studied how the Christian church succeeded. There were so many religious movements that popped up and died and popped up and died. What made Christianity succeed? And I've read several of them, um, several, you know, first century secular historians and guys who frankly have no faith at all in, in the resurrection of Jesus, the historical resurrection of Jesus. And most of them actually trace whatever made the Christians succeed back to this moment in history. Most of them are like, we can't really tell if the resurrection happened or not, but something happened in this room. Whatever it was, these people came out and changed the world. That's all we know. Like They're like, we can't know what happened, but you can certainly trace it back to this day. It's the, the world changed at 9 a.m. on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, 33 A.D., the world changed. Something, and we know it goes back to the resurrection, but historians are like, eh, you can fake that. But you can't fake that they went into this room one way, came out another way. Something majorly huge happened in this moment. And that's the beginning of our story, of this story that we live in every day. This thing we do every single week goes back to this moment in 33 AD. And I feel it's significant to stop and comment on the fact that the very first thing this small bunch of misfit world changers did was share their faith with others. That was the first thing they did. That was their first instinct. And personally, I think that just like the flame came to each one of them, and not just to Moses, and God brought back the languages together, not scattered them. Once again, I think what's happening here when they come out of this open room and share their faith is God fixing a brokenness from long, long ago. When God gathered his people around Mount Sinai, here's how he started the conversation. When he first got them around Sinai, he was getting ready to to do this big thing. Here's how he started it. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God and God called to him from the mountain. Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Israel was never supposed to be This isolated, closed off private club. It was never supposed to be this this kind of closed uh, group that rejected everybody outside. They were supposed to serve as priests, which means the go between between God and the rest of his people, which is the whole world. He said, the whole earth is mine. You're going to be my priest to those people. You're supposed to go out. Israel was supposed to go out to them and point them back to God. Except most of the Jewish story is the Jews rejecting other cultures and trying to find who is out, who is outside the circle. And and exactly how do we keep them outside the circle and what rules put them outside the circle? 
In fact, if we're going we're gonna to hear in a few weeks how this actual very group of Christians struggle when the very first Gentile gets saved. Because they don't know what to do with, with no circle. These are guys who have the Holy Spirit and they don't exactly know how to handle being, that, that this thing can go outside of their circle. They're so used to being a closed group, but that was never God's intention. God showed up and said, you're going to be my priests to the rest of the world so that they can find me. When Jesus showed up, he frustrated everybody because it's like he functioned like there was no circle. He did, that dude just loved everybody and it made everybody mad. Like you can't, you know, the girl comes and washes his feet and the first thing that the Pharisee goes, man, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't do that. Like she's supposed to be outside the circle. And here's Jesus letting her in the circle. What is that about? Samaritans, lepers, everybody who came, Jesus just acted like there was no circle. The Jewish faith was always supposed to be outwardly focused, an inviting movement of God's people. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, Abraham, the kind of genetic beginning of all the Jewish people, God says this, and through your descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. You would be a blessing to all those people that you're closing the door to. So on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is in an instant restoring this universal access to God instead of this kind of mosaic mediator system. And as the Holy Spirit is beginning to, to properly align human unity around the works of God rather than around narcissism, he's also inviting this, the, the rest of the world into it. He's making his people this light to those who are outside the upper room, the way it was always supposed to be. Pentecost was God doing a brand new thing. And that brand new thing was a very old thing. In fact, when Peter began to preach his message, he, he, he started by saying, why are you freaking out? All of this was written before. And he starts quoting old scripture. That's my paraphrase, by the way. That's not direct. Stop freaking out. From day one, the church has been about redemption, about fixing broken things. And I'll say it again, this includes you, this includes me. There is no brokenness so broken that God cannot send his Holy Spirit and redeem it. So when Peter comes out of the upper room, he shares that message with the crowd. And 3,000 people decide that they want to experience that redemption of their brokenness. And this brings me back to where I started. If you... If you mark the coming of the Holy Spirit as the official beginning of the church, then the church is like 10 minutes old when it starts to reproduce. Which is, I think, about how long we've been married when we started. (laughs) But that's what the church is supposed to be about. So again, if you look at this moment... This moment in history, 9 o'clock a.m., 33 A.D., as formative to the church, then it's formative to the church in Wellsville, Kansas today, and every other church around the world. And we have to say reproduction is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It was the very first thing the Christians did. We're called to share the gospel and reproduce. 
In fact, it's, it's kind of what it means to be human. We've been talking about the cultural mandate a lot over the last several months. Genesis 1 says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And on and on and on. This was the very first thing he called humans to do. Reproduce. And it seems to be the, the fundamental feature of the kingdom as well. Be fruitful and multiply. Go and reproduce yourself. Peter obviously takes it seriously. But here's the deal. And this is my own personal beef. Reproduction is incredibly scientific. It involves gametes and mixing chromosomes and zygotes and cellular division and embryos and stem cells that get coded into be a thousand different things. It's, it's very predictable and very explainable and very scientific. Down to the very last detail. But we're humans, which means we're messy. And human reproduction, though scientific always happens in the context of a story. A guy meets a gal and he likes her. His heart races a little when he talks to her. She laughs at his jokes, which makes him feel more confident. But she's been hurt before, so she wants to go slow. So they start with coffee. And the story rolls on and on and on. Or sometimes it's about wanting to reproduce, but struggling. Esther and I have had the privilege, as painful as it can be, to be really close to several couples who struggle with infertility. And we walked with them through that painful journey, and, which is obviously tougher because we reproduce like rabbits. <laughs> but sometimes in those cases, this, this completely predictable scientific process includes shots and doctor visits and medical apparatus and a lot of anxiety and prayer and pain. And the story rolls on and on and on. And sometimes this completely scientific process of reproduction falls unexpectedly into a story. Those stories become about changed futures and altered plans and so often a million unexpected blessings. Esther and I have watched as several of our friends who tried hard to conceive and couldn't adopt someone else's reproductive surprise and and build a family and the story rolls on and on and on. Other times we've seen this utterly scientific, predictable process of reproduction turn out to be the very thing that a parent needed to anchor them back to reality. Honestly, probably save their lives and maybe even their soul because they now have another being to care for. And the story rolls on and on and on. Reproduction is completely predictable and replicable among humans. But it's a story also. Boy, and his entire story meets girl and her entire story. And the story rolls on and on and on. And I don't think it's any different in the kingdom. The reason I say this is my personal beef is because we have a tendency in the church to make salvation, spiritual reproduction, new birth, completely formulaic and predictable. We teach people how to do it in a class. And then we tell them to raise their hand and repeat a couple words after us and and there you are, you're born again and honestly it may be that simple but it ignores the story Luke tells us 3,000 people were added to the church this day and we can so easily approach that number like a calculator but please know that this was 3,000 stories 3,000 reasons for being in Jerusalem that day. 3,000 hopes and dreams. 3,000 broken stories looking to be made whole. 
And God, through his people that day, gave redemption and reproduced 3,000 people. So how do we respond to this? In this morning's passage, the, the earliest church, their very first instinct, once the Holy Spirit filled and empowered them, was to reproduce. As we continue through this book, we're going to see how this group of people scattered all over the Roman Empire, reproducing. And I'm hoping that we're going to feel a new challenge to share our faith with others around us, to, to be light in a dark world. Not just to gather safely in our building, closed off from the world, but that we might feel the call to go and reproduce. But here's the deal. This is not a church growth campaign. This is not about numbers. And if you start counting heads, I swear I will preach for 90 minutes until I get us down to 10 people. That is not, that is not what we're, we're going for. We are about stories, which means sharing our stories with the people in our lives. It's about being open and authentic with them about our faith journey and then hearing their stories and then ultimately telling the God story. In other words, I'm absolutely suggesting an evangelistic movement from Open Table Community Church, but not a let's add people to this space so we can pack bodies in here and celebrate over a head count. That's not what we're about. Amen. <laughs> I will take that. Amen. Amen. I'm suggesting we gather here to be encouraged and filled and blessed and strengthened and equipped so we can go out there and reproduce. And of course, if more people want to come to the church, we're not going to kick them out. But that, that's, that's not what Peter was doing this day. They came to Peter asking, what in the world is going on? And Peter was ready to answer, share his story. God took care of the reproduction part. That's God's business. Peter just answered their questions. And when he was done, the people were ready. Peter's words pierced their heart. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's, those are good days when people are like, hey, how do I get saved? You're like, right on. I had one of those. I was laying carpet at the time. I'm in... And um, the maintenance guys were supposed to pull the fridge out and stuff. And, but I was, I came in, turned on my radio. He wasn't there yet, so I'm pulling the fridge out. So he comes in all out of breath. And he's like, and he hears the radio. He's like, hey, are you a Christian? I was like, yeah, are you? He's like, no, I kind of want to be, but I don't really, I've messed up a lot. And I was like, the perfect reason to become a Christian. It's kind of why we're here. And he was like, I don't really know how. <laughs> and so I was like, well, Explained it to him very simply. Like, you want to, would you like to pray with me? He's like, of course I would. And then afterwards, he was like, you know where I could find a church? I was like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to do anything. And immediately when he left, I prayed for all the people who fed into that dude's life. Who were probably, when they heard the story, were like, are you kidding me? Some total stranger and you pray with him? I've been talking to you for 10 years about Jesus. <laughs> And you pray with some total stranger. Anyway, that's God's part. Our part is to share our, our story with people, to form real relationships with people where we can tell them what's going on in our world and what Jesus is doing in it. And then they'll go have, 
How do I get to be part of that? They asked Peter what comes next. Peter didn't have to beg or cajole or manipulate. We're actually going to see a lot in this book where the people of God are just sharing Jesus. Really, they're just sharing their lives, what's going, what Jesus has done in their life, what Jesus is doing in their life with people. And then the people keep getting saved, and half the time the church doesn't even know what to do about it. And they come back, is this guy allowed to get saved? I, wasn't even, I swear I wasn't even trying. Like Peter, Peter preaches to somebody, and they get saved, and he gets yelled at for it. They're like, what are you doing talking to that guy? He's like, dude, it wasn't even me. It's like God just did it. I wasn't even trying. They're just sharing Jesus and, and sharing their story, and, and God starts reproducing people. And that's really all I'm recommending. We need to be people who are ready to share our faith, not defend our faith or weaponize our faith, but simply to grow intentional about sharing our faith, our life with Jesus. And we leave the growth to God. We leave the reproduction to God. I believe that God wants to do a brand new thing at Open Table Community Church. And I believe that brand new thing is a very, very old thing. God wants to restore brokenness. We have an inordinate number of broken people. People that come to OTCC limping. We've either been beat up by another church or some of us are carrying baggage from our own bad choices. Some of us sit here on the edge of our seats ready to bolt the second this starts looking like other churches we've been to. It's like we're like in a sprinter stance aimed at the door. Like you say one bad thing and I'm out of here. You talk about money and I'm gone. And I've grown to be okay with that. I think a church full of wounded people is incredibly powerful. First, because wounded people tend to be more real. And we have no use for phony here. I'd rather have it real and messy than fake and neat any day. I love, I love AA because it doesn't matter. When you walk in, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, male, female. For that hour, everybody starts the conversation with, Hi, I'm Chris and I'm an alcoholic. That's a powerful equalizer. I, and that's one of the reasons we say the prayer of contrition every day. I love walking in this place, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and saying, forgive us, God, we're sinners. I think that's a powerful thing every day. Not come in here acting holy. Not come in here acting all righteous like we had a great week. Walking in and say, hi, I'm Chris and I'm broken. The main reason I love being in a room full of messed up people is because I think the Holy Spirit wants to restore and redeem our stories. And the more we begin to feel Jesus heal our brokenness, the brokenness we brought here with us, the more we feel Jesus healing our past mistakes and the, the things we didn't think we'd ever be able to lay down. Or maybe it's something that was done to you and... And, and you didn't think you'd ever be able to be less guarded. And it's made you abrasive and you still, you feel Jesus start to heal that. Or maybe it's something you were supposed to get and you didn't get. And, and now there's a hole in you and you don't know how to fill it. And you start to feel Jesus healing that place. The more you feel Jesus heal your idea of church and what church people can be like. That thing that's kept you shielded away from God and away from, from God's people. The more you feel Jesus starting to heal that. 
The more you feel Jesus heal your mind that has just settled into deep cynicism and grown comfortable with the fact that, with the fact that you doubt and, and you're just, you just assume that's the only way to approach the world. And, and when you feel Jesus start to heal your heart and you, you feel genuine faith, even simple, naive faith start to grow in you and you like that feeling. You like not having to approach the world guarded and cynical. The more of our wounds that Jesus begins to heal, the more that Jesus restores our stories, the more story we have to share with others. As the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, I like broken people because as God starts to bring healing to that brokenness, we're almost compelled to share that. We can't wait to tell people the things that Jesus has done. Some of the people I know that are the best at talking about Jesus are the people that are, that, that are the most broken and, and love to talk about the things that Jesus has done in them and to raise their hands and say, Jesus even uses me, a screw-up like me. See, I don't mind being a, a, a part of a ragamuffin group of broken people because then we start to feel a little bit more like the group that came out of the upper room when the Holy Spirit changed everything. So at the end of, G, of Peter's sermon, he gave the crowd this invitation. He said, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So this is my invitation you today. I invite you to repent and turn to God. That simply means change your mind about your sin, to see it for what it is. And when you do that, when you see your sin for what it is, there's nowhere to turn but to God. When you see your sin for, for what it is, when you realize how long you've walked in your own strength and your own power and, and, and tried to do everything on your own, and you realize how far that has taken you from this story of redemption, you when you see that for what it is, there's nowhere to turn but God and go, God, I need your grace. I need you. You admit that you've made a mess of things and you need his grace. And then you're baptized as a sign that you want to be on board. I want to be part of this. I'm, I want to be on this team. I want to be in this story. Baptism is how we do that. So I want to say this. We'll be planning our summer baptism service soon. And if you'd like to be part of that, if you want to be baptized and, be, and, and, and step into this story and say, I want to be, I publicly, I want to be part of the story of God, please reach out to me so we can plan on you for that day. And here's the deal. Uh, we do baby dedications a little weird here, and it bothers some people, which is cool. Um, basically, we recognize both the need to initiate our children into the family of God at a very young age, very similar to the Jews circumcising their boys at eight days old. At a very young age, we want to initiate them into the, into the family and recognize them as part of us. We take that very seriously. So we, so we dedicate uh, our children to join the family. Some, some families, we actually are more comfortable baptizing their babies. It's the faith system they grew up in. And, and we'll do that. And sometimes we're like, whoa, what are you doing? Here's what we've decided. 
We want to initiate our children in the faith young, and we want them to make a conscious choice on their own will to join as well. Some denominations call that a dedication and then baptism of your own free will. Some call it a baptism as a baby and a confirmation of your own free will. I want to confirm my baptism with my own free will. Pick whatever word you want. <laughs> we're, we're, we, don't, we don't argue over the, the language you want to use. We're fine with either. But we believe in both. We believe we want to initiate our kids in early. We want them to choose of their own free will. So, so I say that to say... If you were baptized as a child, you didn't really know what was going on, and you want to confirm that baptism, you want to say, yes, I was initiated in the family young, and I want to choose of my own free will. I want to confirm that in the presence of God's people in my church family and say, yes, I, I'm in. I was baptized young, but I want, to con- I, want to, I want a confirmation. Then this is open to you as well. If that's you and you want to join us in our summer baptism service and, and take that step, it's open to you. So today as we gather around the table and sing one last song, I, I invite you today to find yourself in today's story of God. If you're in the crowd, if you know that's you in the crowd and, and you hear people talking about the things of God and, and you want to be in, then it's time to be baptized. Turn to God. Be baptized. Come talk to me and we want you to take that step and be in the family. And if you find yourself on the other side, you know you were baptized, you know that was you, and you're, you're in the upper room today, then it's time to go. It's time to move. It's time to, to receive the Holy Spirit and ask him anew to send you out into the world, in your little corner of the world, to share your story. To talk about the way Jesus has crashed into your life and the things that, that he wants to do in this world. Because we want to be part of the reproduction of the kingdom of God. Let's go to the table. On the night of his arrest, oh my, Jesus took bread. And lifting it up and giving thanks and praise, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he took the cup. And lifting it up and giving thanks and praise, he said, This is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. So now whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus... We thank you for your sacrifice. That you came and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and rose again to give us new life and ascended into heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come and crash into us and fill us and empower us and and then send us. Not send us out to drag people into our church, but to send us out to make a difference in the world. To send us out to share our faith with the people we rub shoulders with every day. Whether that's our kids, sharing our story with them so that they grow up in the story of God, or whether it's our co-workers, our neighbors, our extended family, just that that we'd be ready to share the mighty works of God. Knowing that you are able 
to, through us, speak to someone else's brokenness in their language. What a powerful gift. So as we gather around your table today, as we take these elements and everything they represent into our bodies, let your Holy Spirit fill us up to send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.